Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the Fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers Indiana News blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm at uh, Fishers City Hall, and I'm with Mayor Scott Fadness. It's always an honor and a pleasure to welcome the mayor to one of my podcasts. So, Mayor Fadness, welcome once again. Good morning, Larry. And it is a morning. It is a raining morning here in Fishers, but uh, there's always something going on. And as, as luck would have it, there was a news release issued just before I walked into City Hall. And this has to do with something that actually had been announced earlier in the year in general, and now specifically a shuttle service with uh, autonomous vehicles coming to Fishers. Uh, I just looked at the news release. Uh, it's going to uh, be centered in the Nickel Plate Arts District. Uh, explain how this came about. Well, uh, it was actually through economic development, believe it or not. We were um, made contact with a group that was looking for a community that was willing to pilot uh, autonomous vehicles. And uh, as a city that's always embraced innovation and wanted to try something new and and uh, new mobility opportunities, we said that we would be willing to explore this. And it's been a long time coming. Uh, we found the right partner, I think. And uh, today is the kind of rollout of it here in Fishers. It's already been at IUPUI for some time as a pilot program. And so now we're seeing it here in Fishers. But, uh, you know, people often talk about their ability to get around our community. We're a suburban community. We're an automobile-driven community for the most part, even though we are making strides in walkability. Uh, so we thought this was kind of a unique and interesting adaptation of transit and uh, wanted to give it a shot. Explain what type of vehicles will be used. Well, there are a variety of black kind of smaller SUVs and uh, cars. You can actually see they're actually driving around as we speak this morning. I saw them out and about. Um, and so they're nice vehicles. They would be like any vehicle you would normally ride in. Uh, I think it's important to note that there is a person in the driver's seat that's there the whole time to ensure the safety of the folks because this is a new technology and we want to make sure it it, uh, it works. Um, but for the most part, they're hands off the steering wheel and you get to experience this kind of unique opportunity at complete autonomy. And so uh, I encourage anyone that's down here to, to give it a shot. Well, I was going to ask you that because is it targeted toward just people living along that line or could you park somewhere, hop on and just try it? You could. Um, honestly, I wouldn't view this as the implementation of a transit system in the city of Fisher so much as a proof of concept. And so if people want to give it a shot, if they want to experience what it's like, uh, it's, it's meant for that purpose. And then, you know, if this proof of concept really works, then perhaps there is a more long-term sustainable model uh, for this kind of autonomous vehicles. Like imagine if you're a person that works at Knowledge Services or, or Round Room or Navient and you want to get to the yard for lunch. Is there a scenario where during the day you can go on your phone, dial one of these up, go out there, get in there, it's fully autonomous, they drive you up for lunch and you come back. I mean, those are the long-term solutions to kind of shrinking the, the universe, so to speak, for our um, people that live here in our city. 
And this will begin December 20th, so that's uh, fairly yeah. soon. We're just uh, beginning the month of December today. It's just a fun, cool project, I think. You know, I want to ask you about that because I've been doing a lot of reading in recent months about the autonomous vehicle industry. And, and what I've been reading, and I'd like your take on this, I've been reading a lot of people who follow this industry saying that technologically, uh, the people working on this technology have hit a brick wall in their view. They just they they got to a certain point, and getting it to where they want it to go to be a truly autonomous type of uh, vehicle or service, uh, the industry is having trouble getting there. What's what's your take on that? I think we're definitely on the um, in the early infancy stages of this. I don't I don't think what we're developing or deploying today is going to be the end all be all. But I think we've got to introduce it into the environments that we're used to living in and working in to better hone in the technology. Um, I think it's in, extremely complex uh, for for a system to be able to make all of the decisions that we do as we drive. We take it for granted, but to build that into any sort of software model or algorithm that is a, that is a significant a bit of work. But we're excited as a city that embraces innovation to at least allow for the opportunity to, to further refine that idea. I want to move on to something people have been following locally. You have some very ambitious plans. Your plan is to demolish the building we're in, the old city hall, for a variety of reasons. Uh, just upkeep has been expensive uh, with this building. But you want to mold into that new city hall an arts center. And also at a different location, there's a plan for a recreation center. Uh, the day before we record this, we're recording this on December 1st, you had a board of works meeting where you approved some early plans. Explain where all those projects are right now. Well, we're using a term called build, operate, transfer uh, in, in a way to procure these services. And so we have a concept or an idea of what the outcome we would like to have, but we haven't done any design. We haven't really sat down with the right technical partners to identify the specific budget, what the uh, physical requirements are going to be. And so there were teams put together internally here at the city that called for a request for proposals, and then evaluated a variety of teams that came forward to say, we can help provide you not only the design and the concept, but then we can build it for you as well. And so uh, we spent probably two months evaluating different teams for both the community center and city hall, and just recently have come to a selection of the teams that we would like to take the next step with. Yesterday at the Board of Public Works and Safety, what occurred is we approved that first step, which is we've selected you as a team. We're now going to sit down over the next several months and work on the design of these projects. And at the end of that process, we're going to have a fully designed concept. We can decide then whether or not we're going to enter into a final agreement with you, which basically says now you're going to go build it and set, stand it up and operate it on some fashion for us between uh, um, now and, you know, say two years from now. So um, what you'll find now is it'll probably go a little bit quiet, to be honest with you, on those two projects because we're going to have our teams working diligently to work on designs and understand kind of what the concepts are. And then I would say probably in the f end of the first quarter of next year, our team will roll out the actual concepts. And I think with that will also come the more more specifics around who are the partners involved in the project? What what all will we be providing to the community and allow the community to have a lot of input at that point? You mentioned BOT, which is that build, operate, transfer, which is also called public-private partnership. 
Just for the public's, I think I understand it, but I'd like you to give you an, an opportunity yeah. to explain how this is a different way to build a public building uh, as opposed to the you know, more traditional yeah. way. Well, the traditional way to do something like this is called design, bid, build, which is I hire an architect. We design whatever it is we want to, to build. Then I go out and do a bid, and whoever is the lowest bidder gets to build the building. Um, that's the traditional model. The problem with that is, and I've been through this before, and this is not a slight on a particular industry, but architects will sit down with us and they'll dream big and we'll come up with this facility that we're all very, very excited about, but we will never have the contractor there to say, well, do you realize if you use that type of material, it's going to cost you 20% more, or that's not con uh, easily constructible, or they don't have operating expertise to say, well, if you build it that way, you're not going to be able to generate the revenue you really think you need. And so when you, when you fragment all those parties involved, you don't get the best outcome. And so what this allows us to do is to tell people, go put your team together. That brings all of those expertises um, to the table early. So now when we're in this, these design meetings, we're not only going to be there with the architect, but the people that are likely to build it and the people that are going to help us understand how to operate it. We're all at the table together making design decisions. And that really does afford you the opportunity to come out with the best possible outcome instead of people finger pointing when the bid comes in 40% over what you thought it was going to. Or two years later, you realize, man, we made some poor decisions on the design that have downstream operational problems. This allows us to all be at the table at the same time having those conversations. And you did select two local contractors, one Meyer and HM for the City Hall Arts Project and Hagerman for the uh, Recreation mm -hmm. Center. Uh, you did talk about the lengthy process you did with your Board of Works yeah. members to go through all the proposals you received. How many proposals did you receive? I think... I mean, roughly, if you roughly, don't know exactly. Yeah, I think there were four for each, okay. if I recall correctly. But it, it wasn't that there was a large number of them, but those are complex proposals. Those are hour-long interviews with each group and then re-interviewing some doing your due diligence on um, the team members that they have on their team, and then, frankly, just a lot of healthy debate among the members of the team that we're evaluating, saying, who, who is the right team? Do they have the vision? Do they believe in what we want to accomplish? Um, so it was, I mean, it was a good, it was probably the most thorough and comprehensive review process we've done to put teams together for something, something and it, it should be for something of this magnitude. And due diligence is very important. I can recall some highway projects the state did under this uh, paradigm, yeah. and uh, they had a contractor go bankrupt, and that can that set that back for years. So you don't want that. That to do due diligence is a correct part of that. I would assume. Yes, we have plenty of attorneys that uh, <laughs> delve into the due diligence side. I just saw a news story yesterday of one of the local TV stations about a construction worker shortage. Does that concern you at all as you plan these projects? Well, yes. Volatility in the construction market, either from a labor perspective or from a um, product delivery perspective, is a challenge. And that's, again, why I think putting the team together where I mean, literally, they're at a point now, Larry, where an architect may say, I'm going to design this type of roof, and the contractor will say, that's a two-year lead time to get that material. And so they got to sit down and say, well, maybe we won't use that material, but we can use an equivalent material that we know we can get. I mean, we're to that point from a scarcity of resources standpoint um, and inflation 
that you really do have to have everybody at the table to figure out, can you even get the material that you need and the labor that you need to put it together? And there is a concern because there's a lot of pent-up demand for construction during the pandemic, and these contractors obviously will be busy. Well, and to be frank, most of the money, the in the significant amount of federal funds that are being pushed to local and state governments haven't even been deployed yet. I mean, there are billions and billions of dollars that are sitting on the sidelines and more coming with the infrastructure um, uh, grant or program that the Congress just passed that will continue to put pressure on uh, pricing and labor uh, as we move forward. I want to ask about the Infrastructure uh, Act, but before I do that, uh, um, do you is it too early yet for all these three big projects you have on, in, in the pipeline? Is it too early to get a range of price tag for that? Well, we're going to be going to the finance committee in the, uh, December to talk about our overall financial strategies. We hone in on that, but I think, you know, we really like to keep City Hall somewhere in the twenty to twenty-two million dollar range. Um, I think the community center could be anywhere from thirty-five to forty-five million, uh, somewhere in that ballpark. And it's just interesting; those numbers uh, used to shock me. But nowadays, just the cost of doing projects, it's um, its not hard to get to a $10 million project any longer, to be honest with you. I mean, it's just really, I mean, fire stations now are 7 or $8 million to build a fire station. Um, so, you know, those are things that we have to deal with. And, uh, and that all goes into, I, I believe wholeheartedly, we need to continue to invest in our community in these quality of life amenities. But you also have to grow your economy to be able to pay for those quality of life amenities. And so that's, you know, and it all comes together. And you're confident, uh, you said this before, that you will be able to construct all this without a, an increase in the tax That's rate. That's correct. Still yeah. confident of that? Yes. Okay. I want to ask about the uh, interstate, oh, I want to ask about the uh, infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill is passed now. We, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation about how much will come in just to the, to the state of Indiana. Yeah. So I'm sure as far as localities are concerned, it's early. Do you think just in the early analysis that Fishers as a city or just our businesses located within Fishers will see any benefit from this uh, infrastructure act? I would think so. Um, anecdotally is all I can really comment on. Uh, I read somewhere that I think Indiana slated to get $8 billion. Over what period of time, I don't know. Uh, it's an extended period of time. These numbers that they throw around are actually over an extended – it's not one fiscal year. It's a number of years. Um, I don't know that the detail has been put out yet as to any specific entitlements that would flow directly to cities. Um, some of that is the devil's in the details. And I think a lot of that has to go to the, you know, whether it goes to the uh, Federal Highway Administration to figure out those direct allotments, I don't know. Um, I will tell you that in the past, Fishers and Carmel and Noblesville have not done exceptionally well relative to other communities when it comes to these federal allotments. Uh, because they're usually based on need, and uh, most of those indicators we don't score well in. Uh, so, for instance, you know, Muncie got $60 million in relief funds. I think Fisher's got six. Uh, Evansville, I think, got $90 million or something to that effect, and, and, and we got six, and we're roughly the same size. So, you know, uh, yet to be seen, and we'll wait to hear whether we see any direct allotments. In general, though, I would assume we're going to see more money than we – previously, and that will allow us to complete a lot of these projects we have in the pipeline. I want to talk about plans to um, 
improve I-69 and Interstate 465, even though that's to the south of us. I remember, I want to talk later about David George and, and his exit from the city council, but I, I remember talking to David George for several years, <clears throat> excuse me, and I made that uh, commute from Indianapolis downtown to and from Fishers and uh, through all the construction projects that went on for years and, and the challenges that went on there. And he always told me as an engineer himself that the key to smoothing out that commute was really I-69 and 465. The state has a plan. It's going to take a few years to get that done. How will that improvement impact fishers? Well, you got to break that into two chapters. One, while it's being built, will be a challenge. And that's something that we're constantly thinking about because are people going to dump off more on Allisonville Road and what kind of pressure that will create? Um, will Mount Comfort Road and I-70 become the preferred choice to avoid all this? And then Olio Road and 96th Street become problematic. Um, in the end, I think it will be extraordinarily helpful for our Fishers residents. That accompanied with the fact we've done so many improvements on 96th Street, 106th Street, and then 37 getting done. Um, really, if you think about it, if we wouldn't have done the work that we've done ahead of time on I-69, if they would have done clear path and gotten that project done and you're moving those cars that much more efficiently, particularly in the PM peak hour, pushing that traffic north, I'm not sure we would have been able to to handle that volume. Now I feel very confident with free flow on 37, 106th Street, and then the four lanes on 96th Street, I think we'll be able to really create a much better commute scenario for Fisher's residents uh, once that project's done. Let me move to uh, the COVID pandemic. It's entering yet another phase. It's always entering another phase. But now the phase we're going through has to do with booster shots, younger people becoming eligible for the vaccination, and, of course, a new variant that's just recent in recent days has been discovered. So I'm just curious how you think the Fishers Health Department is handling all this. Well, I, I, I hope over a period of time people will look back and realize what the folks at Fishers Health Department have accomplished in a very short period of time. Um, the numbers are really pretty staggering. Uh, Ashley, communications director, shared with me last night um, – We've, we've administered over 70,000 vaccines. And what's unique about that is 50% of them were given to people that don't live in Fishers. So people are coming here to get their vaccines from a health department that got started 12 months ago or 18 months ago now. Um, we've done 82,000, I think, uh, COVID tests. 82,000 COVID tests. And today, there's a line out the driveway to get tested. Um, and we're closing in. We are closing in on 90%, 90% of our adult population has a vaccine in a state that ranks among one of the lowest. And your goal was 85%. And we've, and we've exceeded that. Yeah. And we're and, on our way to 90. And that's, that is an amazing statistic. But it's interesting. I, I see the videos that your health department produces each yeah. week by the epidemiologist. And, and even though he says, you know, we have a high percentage of people who have been vaccinated – because we are a community of almost 100,000, mm -hmm. we've still got several thousand people to go. How do we get to those people? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think every lever has been pulled that you can. Um, we're, I, I was just on a, a call this morning with a gentleman who lives in Fishers who said, you know, I, my kids are sick at home and I've just been delaying getting my COVID shot. I'm not against it. I just haven't done it yet. But me and a, another guy at work, we're just going to go get one. And he, and he said... Uh, he said, uh, where can I get one? 
And uh, <laughs> like, why would you ask that I'm, question? <laughs> I go, well, uh, funny you should ask. 116th and Brooks School. Just walk in. You can get one. He's like, really? You can just walk in? Because I said, yes, just just walk in, please. <laughs> so I still think there's a percentage of people that are just have not done it yet because they were healthy and maybe procrastinating. So I think I think we'll pick those folks up hopefully, and um, and then there's going to be a few that just will never get the vaccine, and and that's their choice. But boy, I mean, to be 90%, nearly 90% vaccinated and uh, in a state that's, I think, barely 50%, that's that's incredible. And I appreciate all the residents that have stepped forward and done it. I want to go to the state level on this because the state legislature had, and I'm just reading the press accounts, I wasn't there, what has been described as a marathon hearing the other day on COVID issues dealing with vaccine mandates, particularly and the uh, health emergency that continues in effect, at least for now. In the state of Indiana, there was a, seemed to be an urgency to pass something. All of a sudden, that was called off. And now I suppose it will be handled when the session actually begins in January. Um, that was a, there was a lot of discussion about vaccine mandates. Uh, it seemed that legislators were on one side, but based on the news accounts that I saw, uh, the... the uh, that the, the commercial community and the medical community in Indiana was throwing a cautionary note to, to the lawmakers. Where do you come down on where the state should be? Because what the state does has a big impact on a city. What the state should do uh, in terms of vaccine mandates and COVID policy in general? Well, I think, I guess I land on the side of allowing businesses to make their own decisions, and that cuts both ways. So I don't necessarily agree with the federal government mandating that they do it, but I'm also not okay with the state legislature saying they can't do it. If you believe in um, individual rights or the business's ability to make their own decisions, then I have a lot of faith and confidence in the business community to make whatever decision they see fit for their business and for their employees. So from my perspective, and I think what you heard from the commercial sector was basically let, let us chart our own course we we can figure this out and that comes from some businesses that have decided to mandate and others that have said i'm not going to and as an employer myself i can tell you it's a complicated it's a complicated issue and it's not a one-size-fits-all scenario um so my personal opinion on both sides of this is i would allow the business community to plot their own course I want to move to another subject, and that has to do with economic development development here in Fishers because, um, at least in my view, maybe you have a different view, fairly recently, Fishers has focused, and maybe you've been working on it longer and we're just seeing the results, but we have recent announcements uh, of the attraction of foreign life science firms to the city. I'm just curious, what uh, what prompted uh, this emphasis on the city's part to bring in these life science companies? And we had two big announcement, recent yeah. announcements recently, one from South Korea, the other from Italy. So, so talk about that. Well, we were fortunate enough to um, come across an opportunity about a year and a half ago with Incog Pharmaceutical, uh, Corey Lewis and the team there. And um, that that, I would say, was more happenstance, that they were an entrepreneurial company um, someone connected us to them. We had a great conversation, and we were able to recruit them to build their company here. But in that process, um, it came to my realization, and, and frankly, Megan Baumgartner, our economic development director, we just realized that there's actually a really strong storyline here. There's a great opportunity 
to um, market and position fishers to do well in this area. And so we pivoted pretty quickly and started working hard, not only to understand how we could recruit additional companies, but who are the companies that are already here that are in this industry that we could build relationships with. And from that, you know, we just put our heads down and, and started working. And, you know, I think this is definitely the largest, quickest economic development strategy I've ever been a part of. I mean, we're closing in on a half a billion dollars in um, life sciences investments in from places as far as South Korea and Italy. And uh, it's really, and even entrepreneur, entrepreneurial startups that have ties back to launch fishers. I mean, it's across the, the spectrum and there's more in the pipeline. I'm, I'm in a meeting today with a prospect. So um, again, this is a really exciting opportunity because it shows how dynamic fishers can be. We are known for uh, tech and entrepreneurship, which by the way, Formstack announces the largest equity investment in the history of Indiana in technology, $475 million, I believe it was. Um, in the same week that we announced South Korean uh, life sciences company coming for $120 or $140 million, to have both of those things simultaneously happen in the same week in a community of 100,000 just shows and demonstrates how dynamic the economy here is in Fishers. I want to talk about something else. Um, Thompson Thrift has been very involved in, in the development in Fishers, uh, constructing uh, the uh, Fishers District, which was originally named the Arden, and switched right. to Fishers District. They've sold that uh, development, but they now have a, a large apartment development just to the south of uh, of that Fishers District development. And I found something quite interesting happen. When I placed uh, the link to that on my Facebook uh, personal Facebook page, it started quite a discussion among some people. The first discussion was, how is this going to impact HSE schools? Of course, I don't think anybody will be actually moving in until 2023 at the earliest. So there's a little timeline there. But that morphed into a discussion of what's going to happen to Fisher's elementary school. So for those who don't know, that was the original Fisher's high school yeah. in the old, old days of Fisher's. It's the oldest building in the HSE school inventory, it takes up a lot. Most of these elementaries, I think, are 20 acres. This is like eight. Um, there's a, The school board has a decision to make. But I'm, I'm, the reason I am bringing this to you is that state law has some very, how should I put this, limits the options of the school board. Because if right. the, if the uh, school board were to vacate that property, my understanding is that a charter school would have first call on that before anything else could be done. And tell me if I'm wrong on that, but I think that's one of the the, the in, uh, ingredients that go in, goes into that. There's a lot of economic growth going on around Fisher's Elementary School, so the school board has a very big decision to make, and they've been talking about that recently. But my question to you is: Does the city have any part to play in in the future of that? property there at Fisher's Elementary? Well, uh, potentially. Um, Dr. Stokes and I have uh, have had casual conversations about the fact that there's quite a bit of maintenance to be done on that building. And so it's a question mark as to just like City Hall, right? You know, at what point are you putting a lot of money into a building that probably isn't worth uh, salvaging? And so they have to, they have to figure that out. Um, we're happy to continue to dialogue and work with the schools to figure out if there's a, a good solution for them and for us if they were to do something around that school. You know, as for the um, the apartment conversation in schools, I, I, I continue to find that an interesting discussion. Um, 
you know, from a per assessed value per child scenario, um, apart, apartment buildings generate a lot more property tax assessment than they do children. Uh, statistically, we could show that over and over and over again. That doesn't mean we should go build uh, a plethora of apartments, but I want to make sure we're always talking about facts and and understanding the numbers and the data behind things before we before we just say things. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think is going to be important as we look at our housing study that we're doing. This is one of my desires was to really I I, I grow weary of the. Um, conversations that aren't grounded in facts or reality. And we, we commissioned a housing study, and <clears throat> that's task force is working its way through uh, right now. And I really look forward to sharing that with the community. And I have no predefined notion as to what the numbers are or are not going to be, but at least we're all going to be grounded in some sort of fact. And, and I think that's going to be important. I remember the apartment complex that was being built. Uh, well, we had a big fire, as a matter of fact, while it was mm -hmm. being built. But uh, near Fisher's uh, Junior High School, and there was a lot of commotion about how much this was going to impact the schools. Later found out that there was, in that entire complex, there was one child in school. <laughs> Like yeah. one, they were not uh, marketing to families, and uh, yeah. that came out later. So I think facts are are very important when we have that discussion. I want to talk about downtown as in terms of development because the Nickel Plate Trail downtown, the, the tunnel is is nearly finished or it's coming along. You have the first Internet Bank headquarters mm -hmm. that is getting set to open, and all that development along 116th Street and really all the other construction related to that that's that's going on now. Uh, I know that the Nickel Plate Trail will have a big ceremony to open it. It may actually be open before that. Uh, it'll, it'll be available to people maybe even before that in the early spring. So I'm, what I'm asking you here is as you look at that, what are the timelines you envision for some of this development to be completed? Well, I think I'm really excited about next summer, to be honest with you, for a variety of reasons. One, I think we're going to be hopefully on the backside of COVID and really we'll have a good year of school behind us. Everyone will be back to some degree of normalcy, but also um, we're going to have downtown in a really sound place with first internet bank being done. Uh, the CRG project will be done. The nickel plate trail will be done and people will start to really, I think, see the vision that's down here in, in the experience and um, they'll go out, they'll be able to go out and enjoy it. And uh, that's what I'm really, I mean, I'm fortunate that I get to go tour these things while they're under construction. So I start to see uh, hints of like, Oh wow, what this is really going to be. And so by the time we cut the ribbons, to be honest with you, I'm usually on to the next, on to the next thing. Um, but I really am excited for Fisher's residents to be able to come down and enjoy what I think are really world-class amenities. The Nickel Plate Trail uh, will be an extraordinary asset for our community. And um, and then, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful in the next I – I guess I don't know the timeline, but, you know, we're talking about this boutique hotel in downtown Fisher's. It was part of the original agreement. I think we're going to be at a point where we can share kind of final designs of that. And so that will be a, another addition in downtown. So – you know, there's just a lot of activity and energy that I think next year will really hit a peak. Another issue that's been going on for several months now, actually going even further back than that, because there was a, a moratorium for a while, placement of 5G towers in Fisher's neighborhoods. It has, and I don't have to tell you this, sparked lively discussion amongst residents and homeowners associations. I do want to give you a chance to respond to one allegation I have seen in some of the comments I get on my blog and just in, in social media. 
the Glen Abbey section of Windermere came before the Board of Public Works and Safety, which uh, looks at these, and just stated flatly they want no 5G towers. They hired an attorney to get up and make a case before your board, and your reaction was, let's get the lawyers together for Verizon, for the neighborhood, and the city, and see what we can come up with. There seemed to be a feeling among some people in Fishers that Glen Abbey was getting special treatment. Now, somebody who covers these meetings, it didn't appear to me to be the case. And uh, something happened at yesterday's meeting, which I'll give you a chance to uh, talk about in terms of that neighborhood and just in general what that meeting of lawyers, uh, uh, what the result of that was. So explain how this the whole 5G deployment is going and, and, and particularly this argument that the Glen Abbey sure. Windermere people made about how they should not have to have any 5G towers. Well, it's, it's a very difficult conversation. Larry, you've been to a number of these meetings and these are not, these are not enjoyable conversations. Uh, as for special treatment for Windermere, I think it, what happens in every one of these is the petitioner, which is usually Verizon or some telecom industry, comes forward and they say, I want to put a tower in this neighborhood. The neighborhood's notified. The individual residents in the HOA, they respond in a variety of ways. Some respond and say, we're okay with this, but we want a light put on it. And if Verizon says okay or telecom says okay, and then we, then we bless it and it moves forward. Uh, others say, well, I'd really like it moved 50 feet one way or another. And, um, and if Verizon hasn't provided an answer or the telecom hasn't provided an answer, then a lot of times we'll table them and say, well, we want you to go back and look at this. In the particular case of um, Glen Abbey, what happened was a lawyer came forward and challenged the legality of um, the decisions being made from a board perspective and what we could deny or what we uh, couldn't deny. And I'm not the state Supreme Court. Uh, I, am not, I am not interpreting state law when we're sitting up there. I'm, I have a narrow area of um, consideration. So what I said is we'll table this and you provide your legal arguments to my city attorney. Verizon, you can provide a response. And then ultimately I have to follow the legal counsel that I have that says you're either doing what you're supposed to be doing or you're not. Uh, our city attorney, Chris Greisel, evaluated both legal opinions and told me we're still on course for what we had intended to do. So I don't think we treated Glen Abbey any different than any other neighborhood that would come forward and say, well, what about this? What can we consider this? And we gave it its due evaluation. And, you know, our city attorney ha does not feel that we need, we need or can, frankly, is probably the better word, change course. And so we'll proceed accordingly. And Glen Abbey will be considered at the December 13th Correct. meeting. There yeah. was a personal situation right. that delayed it. But uh, then it, you, what you're saying is that will be evaluated the same way all the others. And the interesting thing is you do deny towers occasionally, but the law only allows you, and tell me if I get this right, only allows you to consider, for instance, you're obstructing someone's view in front of their picture window, and that's uh, and the impact on individual homeowners. That's really the only. It's a, uh, it's a very bizarre. Have. This yeah. is a very bizarre situation that you see playing out. Where first of all, it's new legislation. This is new law, so we, there are no norms. We are we are one of the few communities that are actually trying to figure this out, partially because we're one of the first communities that the telecom industry is investing in. It's not that we're leading the way because we want to put these towers and it's because the telecom industry has identified fishers as a place they want to put these towers. So they're on our front door. Um, but yeah, I, I it's, um, 
you know, you saw the other day, there was a gentleman that came up and said, well, we would like an answer mm-hmm. to the question of coverage. Mm-hmm. Why can't they move this so many feet from a coverage perspective? And they compel, they were compelling us, the, the resident was saying, you know, Mayor Fadness, why can't you have them answer this question? And I have to literally say, under federal law, I'm not allowed to ask them that question. That's a, that's a very unusual position to be in. I think the quote was, you can ask the question, they're not compelled to answer yeah, you. Right. It's, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's a bit of a cat and mouse game that we're playing out. But I feel good about the fact that, you know, we denied two the other day. And it was because, bottom line, there was no solution that Verizon was providing that didn't put that tower in front of someone's picture window. And so all this effort, and I really give Chris Greisel a lot of credit, our city attorney, you know, he put this legislation in place so that we had an even fighting chance to have that conversation, because otherwise we wouldn't have that. Yeah, you mentioned that you were at the legislature, and the yep. telecom industry didn't even want that the They wanted a cutout. complete preemption, mm-hmm. where there was no local anything. Uh, it would just, you file the permit, you go put it in. Uh, and so at least we have a process. And look, I'd, I would rather not spend two hours every two weeks uh, trying to figure these things out. But I appreciate my Board of Public Works, Jeff Lance and Jason Meyer, sit there every two weeks and try to find out a solution that works for everybody. I want to move on to something else because uh, recently uh, the city has said goodbye to David George and his public service. goes back a number of years to the town council days. He served on the city council since uh, the city, uh, Fishers has become a city. Talk about the legacy that uh, David George leaves behind in, in his public service. I think David's uh, legacy would probably be um, mostly focused on infrastructure uh, David, being an engineer by background, cared an awful lot about um, the city's overall traffic infrastructure. The other thing that I think David drove home to me was really making sure we're reinvesting in our older neighborhoods. You know, he really was an advocate for going into neighborhoods, and it sounds little, but it's important, paving our streets curb to curb in the entire neighborhood, where in the past we would do 200 feet here and 400 feet there. Um, he, he really was a staunch advocate for reinvesting in older neighborhoods. And I think that's probably going to be David's um, legacy. And the other thing I would say about David, because I've known him for 15 years, um, David was always a, a civil person. He was an individual who maybe didn't always agree with what was being said, but you never found David to be um, playing any kind of political games or um, you know, being full of rhetoric. He was just he was just a guy that wanted to see fishers do well. And I always think it's good to have at least one engineer on every public board. Because you want one engineer, but not nine. No, well, I was <laughs> going to say that, too. <laughs> he said it for me. But I think an engineer does approach problems in a different way and sometimes will give you a different perspective, which is always good to have when you're evaluating anything. They oftentimes anything. can take uh, a bit of the emotion or humanity out of things and focus <laughs> primarily on the, the facts at hand, which is always helpful. I was trying to count. I hope I counted correctly. If I did, this you, you were about to complete your seventh year as mayor of Fishers. Um, I think that's accurate. You were. Um, I was a one-year term, and then a four-year, and now I'm in my. Uh, yeah. Yep, okay, so I actually year. did count correctly. I lose track. You were the uh, once we uh, had the referendum that made uh, Fishers a second-class yeah. city. Uh, you were the first mayor of Fishers, and so far, you're the only mayor Correct. that Fishers has ever known. So looking back on seven years, how would you look at your most important accomplishments? Um, 
I would say I would put it in probably three categories. Um, first and foremost, and I guess I always say this, but I'm proud of the team I put around me. It's it's allowed me to accomplish the vision I had in my head of what our community could become. So I'm very proud of that. Um, two, uh, I think we've created a very dynamic place for uh, um, commerce and industry to occur, which people take perhaps for granted today, but it wasn't. It was not here uh, a decade ago. And three, I, I think we're on our way to creating a true sense of community through our community events, through our mental health initiatives, and, and just focusing on the softer side of things, that, that people infrastructure that's so critically important. Um, I think we've made progress there, and I think in the next few years we're really going to excel in that area. So I, I would say those three things are the things that um, I, I probably would say I'm most proud of. Well, I try to ask a number of questions here before we wrap this up. Is there anything you would like to add? Um, I, I guess I would tell people, because I said this in my state of the city, I think Fishers is doing very well. I mean, we're doing, we're doing very well. As a community, we have some work to do on how we treat each other. Um, but in terms of a city, uh, I think we're doing exceptionally well. Our economy's strong. We're This upcoming year or two, you're going to see – probably the largest investment in quality of life amenities in the history of Fishers. Uh, and I think that's something that's very exciting. And I think it's also so important that a community continues to invest in itself. I mean, you, you have to take care of yourself. And I think this community is going to see that here in the next few years, and they're really going to enjoy um, these additional amenities. So I think people should look to the future with excitement here in Fishers. I see nothing but opportunity. Um, and uh, we're energized to go accomplish those opportunities. I'm sorry, I have to ask one follow-up yes. on that. When you say we have to work on how we treat each other, talk more about that. Well, I think coming out of COVID, and I, I spent a lot of time in my state of the city talking about this, um, we've all dealt with a very difficult time. You know, I was just at lunch with someone yesterday, and we were having this conversation. I don't think people have come to grips with just what all they've gone through in the last year and a half. And so there's, even though... All of the metrics, whether you're talking about our economy, you know, from a safety perspective in Fishers, all those things are great. But the people are still very much on edge. And, um, and I think their, their level of patience with one another is at an all-time low. And, um, and that's manifested in so many different ways. You know, go out on Facebook. Go look at that cesspool. Um, that doesn't warrant the type of community that I think we can become or need to be. So we got to get back to the ground game of looking each other in the eye, having an honest conversation, then realize that people are human. Like, because and this is maybe controversial, but because someone doesn't want to get a vaccine doesn't make them a horrible human being. Or just because someone wears a face mask doesn't make them a raging liberal with no concept of reality. I mean, People are complex individuals, and the fact that we're just now all of a sudden vilifying everyone based on one particular issue, I think is problematic. And so I think we can chip away at that, and I think we do that by building these senses of community where you see each other at the farmer's market, or you go to a community event, or you volunteer on a board, and you realize that the person sitting next to you is a good person that maybe just has a variety of ideas that are different than yours. Um, we've got to get back to that in a, in a major way. When you talk about social media, I'll just end with this comment. Jack Dorsey invented Twitter. 
when he left as CEO, the first thing he did was delete his Twitter account. So says something. <laughs> I'll say that. Mayor Fadness, thank you once again. You've been very kind with your time. Thanks, Larry. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase, Podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. So thanks for listening, and please be safe and be kind. Mm-hmm.